Today we begin a new series in 1 Corinthians. We finished up Ecclesiastes last week. Um, some of you could probably continue, would be just fine continuing on in Ecclesiastes for forever, perhaps. Uh, but some of you are very thankful we are moving on to something else. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for about a year. Um, we're going to take a couple breaks, uh, strategic breaks, and, and do some, uh, some other shorter series in there. But all of that together will take us about a year. 1 Corinthians is a pretty long letter. It's the second longest of Paul's letters in the New Testament after Romans. Um, you know, this is a letter. If you received it in the mail, it would probably come in a manila folder and be pretty thick um, and have a few stamps on it. It's, it's thick. And it covers a lot of ground. A lot of topics are covered, and they're just as relevant to us today as they were then. We're going to look at the, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world, marriage, singleness, the church, the purity and witness of the church, spiritual gifts, the resurrection, glorifying God with our sexuality, and a lot else. So today, we're just going to cover the first three verses and kind of get our, our bearings, kind of get some context to this letter. Um, who is Paul? Who is the author here? Um, what is his relationship with the church from Corinth or the church in Corinth? And uh, why is he writing this letter? But I hope more than just gaining information about all of this, learning background information, the hope is that today we'll see that the same message that established this church in Corinth and the same message that Paul is calling this church back to is the message that still establishes churches today, including ours, and that we are called to come back to again and again. Okay, so we're just going to jump right in. Um, we are going to turn back to Acts a good bit and get kind of the story of, of the church in Corinth. So if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, be ready to, to flip back there. Uh, so we'll start with verse 1, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. So you might know a little bit about Paul and Paul's story. He had been a Pharisee um, of this group of, this one group of Jewish religious uh, leaders in New Testament times, and they were known for their strict adherence to the law, to the Mosaic law or the law of Moses. And we know from Scripture that at least many of them tended to be very proud of their strict adherence to the law, and they came across as very self-righteous, quite self-assured of themselves. And as you read the Gospels, you find them often at odds with Jesus. So just as an example of this, Paul, after his conversion, he wrote about some of the sense of accomplishment he had in being a Pharisee. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so part of, part of Paul's identity, um, which at one point he was very proud of, was that he was a persecutor of this, this new sect, this, this, the way this, these Christians and so in Scripture, we first hear of Paul in Acts 7. A man named Stephen is being stoned to death for preaching the gospel and for telling a group of Jews that they had not just killed another man, but they had killed 
the Messiah, the righteous one. And we are told that after Stephen is stoned to death, that his clothes are laid at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul approved of his execution. Now, Saul is also Paul's name. Saul is his, um, Paul is his Greek name, Saul is his Hebrew name. So depending on the context, when you find him in, in Scripture, you'll either find Saul or Paul. We were later, later told that Saul was ravaging the church and going door to door, dragging men and women who belonged to this new way of, of Jesus to prison. And then in Acts we read that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now it's helpful to understand a little bit about this, this, the, the source of this division or conflict or the zeal that Paul had at this time. At root, this was a division between Jews who believed that Jesus was not just any other guy and was not just a great teacher and wasn't even just this promised Messiah, but that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh, Savior of the world, and between Jews who didn't believe this. But to grasp why that mattered so much, why this was such a heated issue, you have to understand that perhaps the most fundamental tenet or belief of Judaism then and now is that God is one and that God is in heaven. Most other religions around the Jews believed in many gods. They had many gods, but Jews claimed that there was only one God um, because this is what God had told them. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before or besides me. Um, elsewhere in Scripture, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which Jews still repeat every day to this day, the Lord is one. And everyone knew that this one God was in heaven, not on earth. Yes, he was going to send a kingly Messiah figure, um, prophesied about, but no one really thought that this Messiah would be God himself. And so to claim that this Jesus, who had come on the scene, was not just not even just this Messiah, was actually God in the flesh, seemed like blasphemy. It seemed that you were saying, there is another God. And blasphemy was punishable by death. Furthermore, making this claim even more ridiculous seeming, was the fact that Jesus had been killed. And not just killed by anyone, he'd been killed by the Romans. The Messiah was supposed to come and rescue the Jews from their enemies, which at this point in time were the Romans. Instead, he came and was killed by them. So all that to say, it helps to understand that Paul and those like him who were persecuting, imprisoning, and even murdering people who were making these claims of Jesus thought that they were honoring God, thought that they were honoring the one true God. Now, on the flip side of this, consider that for a bunch of Jews in first century to actually come to believe and then confess out loud that Jesus was God 
meant that they must have been absolutely convinced of it. Like, this was no easy step or easy transition. They were opening themselves up to the charge of blasphemy, and they were putting their lives on the line to come out and say, Jesus is God, Savior of the world. And they not only believed this as a ni nice idea in their head, which they kind of kept to themselves, they believed that it, it fundamentally mattered. It was absolutely significant what one believed about Jesus. And we'll see this as we go on in 1 Corinthians, that what we confess and what we actually believe, not just what we say with our words, but what we actually believe about Jesus is all determining. Is he Lord or is he not? Is he the one and only Savior and way to peace with God, or is he something less than that? Perhaps a great teacher, a great example, but in reality, just a man. Later on in chapter 1 here, Paul will say that this message of Christ and him crucified is a stumbling block to many. It's a stumbling block to many. This, this hinge of who Jesus is is a stumbling block to many, but to all those who are called, it is the very wisdom and power of God. Like diametrically opposed, like stumbling block, find it foolish, or this is the essence of God's wisdom and power. So this is what the early church is grappling with. And Paul, in God's wisdom, is going to have a major role in this. And so as we continue on in Acts 9, starting at verse 3, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so through this encounter, God changes Paul, converts him, tells him that he will be a, quote, servant and witness to what he has seen. And he's going to go around and, so that others may, quote, receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So pretty quickly, Paul is, goes around proclaiming this message for which he was recently trying to imprison and murder people. And pretty soon he's the one with threats on his life. In time, Paul becomes known as an apostle, and we see that in our first verse here. He says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now this word apostle has both a, a general meaning and a specific meaning in 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 Scripture and in, in this time in the early church. Generally, apostle just means one who is sent. That's what the word means, one that is sent out. But for the early church, it also frequently had a very specific and particular meaning, referring to a select group of men who had seen the risen Jesus, had been called by Jesus as his witnesses, and were sent out to proclaim Jesus. And so you have, of course, the 12 apostles. And then it seems that Paul was eventually considered as one of this specific particular group of apostles, as he had in this encounter seen the risen Lord and he had received a direct commission from Jesus to go out and spread yeah. this message. 
And he likely brings and he likely brings that up at the beginning of 1 Corinthians because as we'll see, there are some in the Corinthian church that don't think much of Paul. There's a group, fairly sizable group it seems, in the church that has a lot of influence that doesn't think too highly of Paul or his preaching or his gospel. And Paul is going to, at several points, reassert his authority, his calling from God, not because he's power hungry, but because he cares about the Corinthians and he cares about the gospel. And he cares to see that they get that right. And one of the reasons that Paul cares so much about the Corinthians is because he planted this church with some help from others. So verse 2, moving on, says, Paul begins to address his audience here in this letter, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So after Paul's conversion, he begins to go on these missionary journeys. He goes around making disciples, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches. About 15 years after his conversion, he goes on his second missionary journey. And I think we have a map of that here. If you can see, um, he starts down here in um, near Jerusalem, Caesarea. Goes up, travels around, a couple boat trips, long boat trip, and comes back. Um, this is modern-day Turkey, and this is Greece, and Corinth is right here. Um, and we get a glimpse, so before Corinth, he's in Thessalonica there, up a little bit further north. You can leave that up for a little bit, Mark. Um, and we get a glimpse of how Paul went about his preaching um, in Acts 7 when he's in Thessalonica. So seven, or 17, Acts 17, starting at verse 2, says, Paul went in, that is to the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So just in that, notice the focus of Paul's disciple-making, life-changing, church-planting efforts. Notice that he is preaching, as he will go on to say, Christ and him crucified. He is explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and Jesus is this man. That is the heart of Paul's message. That is, that is his method and his means for making disciples and planting churches. Eventually, Paul comes to Corinth. Now, Corinth in that day was an interesting place. In many ways. It was a Roman colony, but it had a long Greek history, and so there were a lot of uh, Greek culture and ideals at play, things like individualism, equality, freedom, distrust of authority. You also had a lot of people from Egypt and, and Asia and the East, as well as some Jews, and so this was a very, very diverse city, ethnically, culturally, and otherwise. Um, it was a port city, and so, as with many port cities, there was a lots of vice and immorality and sexual expression. But right along with that, you also had a lot of religious expression. 
There was lots of temples, lots of gods, lots of cults, lots of options for what you believed and what you worshipped. And so one commentator says that Corinth in this day was at one and the same time the, the New York, the Las Vegas, and the Los Angeles of the ancient world. Gives you a, a sense of what it was like. In, in many ways, it was very similar to the world we live in, which probably explains why it is so readily relevant to us. Paul ends up staying in Corinth for 18 months, which is much longer than he stayed anywhere else on this second journey. And part of the reason for this is because of a vision that God gave him, which we read about in Acts 18. God speaks to him and says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And then hear this, this last part especially, For I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, God is the one ultimately doing things here. God is the ulti ultimately the one drawing people to himself and establishing churches. He's using Paul. Paul is a means. Paul is an instrument. But it was God who has an, had and has an unfailing plan to build his church. And it's the same today. God is still building his church God is still using the same means, the, the gospel message of Christ and him crucified. And he's using means. He uses us. On our part, we must repent and believe and then continue on in faith and love and worship. We are called not just to be disciples, but also to be involved in the process of making disciples. As we gather as a church like this, as we go out and witness to Jesus in, in our lives. And in all of that, what comfort is to know that everything does not rest on our power or ability or goodness or resolve, but on God seeking out and finding and building up and establishing his people. He uses us. He uses means but ultimately our hope is in God. And God uses Paul to plant this church in Corinth. In time, it likely was a collection of house churches with up to 50 people in them. We don't really know how many of these house churches. And then about three years after the, the church was planted, about 55 or 54 AD, Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. And it came about because of some concerning reports that Paul had received about the church. So here's a few of the things that were going on in the church, which led to 1 Corinthians being written. Uh, we know that there was division among believers, uh, particularly among the wealthy, the wealthy and powerful over against the, the poor and the weak. It seems that they didn't really care for each other, and they were just looking out for themselves and, and maintaining their social status. We know that there's a group that doesn't think much of Paul and his ministry. And in this, they're not only dismissing Paul, but also dismissing the true gospel that Paul had brought. We know that the Corinthians are confused and or just plain ignorant about some significant issues. Marriage and divorce, the bodily resurrection, spiritual gifts, 
whether they could participate in pagan religions and to what degree. And then there are some serious moral issues within the church. Some of them are suing each other, going to the, the secular courts and bringing each other um, charges. Seems that some are going into prostitutes. And then there's a guy that is sleeping with his stepmother. And to make matters worse, the church seems to be not only okay with this, but boasting about it. Like, look at what freedom we have. All that to say, this is a real church with real people, with real needs and real problems. Their flaws are quite obvious. With this context, consider then how Paul begins his letter. In verses 2 and 3, what does Paul draw their attention to? What does he remind them of? What does he, what does he highlight? He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll walk through this, but just consider of all the ways Paul could have begun this letter, of all the serious concerns he has about this church, and, and he's going to lay into them fairly, fairly well. Consider how he begins there. To the church of God. Um, the word church in the New Testament, ecclesia, means assembly or congregation, and it can refer to both the universal, invisible church, that is, the, all believers from all time and across history and across the world, and it's invisible in the sense that only God knows fully all of those who are His. But the term also refers to specific, local, visible congregations like, like us. And these aspects of the church are visible in that we see each other, we know each other. Others, when they hear us say, hey, we go to this church, they, they know that we are a part of that church. It's a tangible, visible expression of God's people. And so you'll hear people say that the church is not a building, it's a people. And that's, a, that's of course, true. But there's more to it than that. It's a people that gather together. Um, Jonathan Lehman uses the analogy of a basketball team. So the basketball players that are on a basketball team are on that team whether they're on the court or not. But if they never get on the court, if they're never actually playing basketball together, can't really say that they're a basketball team. If we never gather together as a specific local group of believers, we are not a church in this, this biblical sense of what a church is. There are many other arguments for why we should gather regularly together. God commands it. It is good for us. We are to be encouraged by it. But one reason is simply that's what church means. It means gathering assembling together. And it is to one of these specific, visible, local outposts of the church that Paul is writing. To the church of God that is in Corinth. He goes on, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, these are some 
You know, if you've been in the church for a while, you hear these certain words a lot, and you're, you're not always sure what they mean, right? Sanctified saints. Well, in this case, both these words are related. They come from the same root word. One is just a verb, and one is a noun. They mean holy or holy people. And the big idea there is something that is set aside or set apart for service to God. And so when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is the same word that we get here. And we are confessing that God's name or God's character and God himself is set apart, is set aside as sacred and should be reverenced and held with honor. But here, the subject is not God, but the Corinthians. It is the Corinthians who are set aside. And we are told that this is in Christ Jesus. So the ground of their belonging to Jesus and his church and being set aside for service to God is Christ Jesus. Is the finished work of Christ. Paul will go on to say that you were He tells them later in the letter, you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so just as for them, our salvation does not rest on our performance day by day. It does not rest on our great moral resolve, our choosing to identify as a Christian, are simply being naturally more spiritual or religious, are preferring God to whatever other religions and lifestyles out there. No, by God's design, our salvation rests on a, the finished work of Christ and our confession of that. A true confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior is the only way to be washed and purified and made right and forgiven and brought into favor and fellowship with God. It's the finished work of Christ that matters and our grasping it by faith. And the reason this is so important right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians is, again, Paul's going to lay into them a bit. But the solution to their problems and the solution to the struggles, the sins, and the suffering in yours and my life isn't, isn't just get it together. Come on now. You can do better than that. Try harder. Rather, the solution is remember what God has done for you. Remember who you are in Jesus and that if you've clung to him and come to him by faith, that you are a new creation, radically changed from the inside out. Paul could have begun this letter in many other ways. He could have begun it by calling into question their faith. Like, really? You should see some of the other churches. You guys are pretty colorful. But he doesn't. He starts with the work of Christ and their confession of that. Is Jesus Lord or is something else, or someone else Lord? Do you boast in Christ above all things or are you boasting and glorying and hoping in something else? Is your comfort and hope and salvation in Jesus or in something else? 
Everything hinges on that. So that's how he begins. This is the message, again, that the churches, the early churches were established on, where lives were changed and through which disciples were made. And of course, it's the same for us today. The, the message hasn't changed. The means that God uses to make disciples and change lives and build churches hasn't changed. Only in Christ do we become a sanctified, set-apart people. Only in and through Christ do we become beloved children of God, forgiven, delighted in, rejoiced over, and empowered to love and worship Him. And still today, as God said to Paul in that vision, God has people in this city who are his. I mean, if God has called us to make disciples of all nations, to proclaim the gospel, to tell the news of his glory and grace, then he will bear fruit to that, including in this city. God is still planting and establishing and building up local, specific, visible outposts of his people, which we call churches. And even our gathering here today is, is a sign of this. We, we gather in following a long line of believers coming together regularly to, to worship God, to hear from God, submit to God's word, to pray together to God, to encourage one another, and to remember God's grace in Jesus. We aren't, we aren't doing anything new. We're doing what believers have been doing for thousands of years. And through which God has told us he will build his church. These are the means. God's word is fruitful and active and powerful and alive. It changes us. And so one of the ways that we do this each week is by taking communion. In communion, we remember the very ground, and source, and root of our identity in Christ's body and blood. And the source of our unity as a people. It is what draws us here together. It's what unifies us. It is also what gives us hope and strength in hard times, so we come back to what God has done for us and the unshakable favor and presence and promises of God for us. It's also what keeps us appropriately humble in good times. That our identity doesn't rest on anything we've done, but on what God has done for us. Let's pray.